Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the Deadly Analysis Podcast. My name is Noah Adam. I'll be your host today. And we are going to be analyzing and reviewing a fantastic horror film from 2010 called Let Me In. And yes, this is a review of the American remake starring Chloe Moretz, not to be confused with the original 2008 Swedish film Let the Right One In. And I probably should start this podcast by defending my decision to analyze the American version of this film. I've had like a lot of people send me messages on Facebook and Twitter asking me why I would dare analyze the blasphemous American remake instead of its uh, Swedish original, which many consider to be better. So I'll state unequivocally that in my opinion, I mean, I think overall the Swedish film actually is superior to the uh, American film. The American remake is actually almost a shot for shot rehashing of the Swedish film. And quite frankly, in my opinion, the American version is I don't know, somewhat unnecessary, uh, given how strong the original was. Now, with that said, there are some differences between the two films in terms of the tone, the acting styles, and I'd probably go so far as to even say the message. And those variances make for a, a somewhat different interpretation of the film, and it's the interpretive elements of the American film that I'm interested in talking about. So hang in there with me. Let me convince you why I selected this version. It's I promise it's not because I'm an American idiot who just can't live in a world of subtitles. I promise that's not the case. A great deal of my favorite scary movies are foreign films. Films. Um, it just has to do with a fundamentally different message that I draw from the American version, and it's that message that I'm interested in exploring. Also, if just for like one second I could put on my asshole hat for a minute, big pet peeve of mine. Just because one version of a film is better than another doesn't mean that the other version is just automatically shitty, right? So as a standalone horror film, like if you haven't seen the Swedish original, this American version is actually extremely well done and it's worth your time. I mean, both of these films, the Swedish version and the American, are listed on Rotten Tomatoes' top 100 horror films of all time, receiving a 98% and 88% respectively, which is stupidly high for horror films. So let's kind of get off our high horse and stop thinking that, you know, just because a film is redone that the original is the only one worth watching or worth analyzing. I'm going to shatter that idea for you in this podcast. So make no mistake about it. I, I think the original film is a little better overall, but the American film purveys a thematic difference that I think is tangible. It's heavy and it hits close to home with me, which is why I'm reviewing it. Okay, let's talk about Let Me In. Let Me In is about a young boy named Owen who has a really shitty home life. He lives alone with his mom while his parents are going through a somewhat contentious divorce, and both of his parents are distant and aloof. Owen doesn't seem to get what he needs from his mom and dad in order to live a healthy and happy childhood. He's bullied heavily in school for being somewhat weak and effeminate, and he doesn't seem to have any real friends. That is, until Abby moves in next door. Now, Abby is a vampire, a vampire that perpetually looks like she's 12, even though she's really hundreds of years old. Abby needs blood in order to live, and she has a father figure who lives with her. And this father figure, who's not named in the film, he goes out into the evenings to kill innocent people and drain them of their blood in order to nourish Abby's needs. Abby does not kill people herself unless she absolutely needs to. Now, Abby takes an interest in Owen, and Owen takes an interest in Abby. And as the film progresses, you start to see that they need each other more and more. Owen needs Abby emotionally, and Abby needs Owen physically. Physically in the sense that the father figure guy that she travels with is getting old and sloppy at killing people in order to nourish her, and it looks like eventually she's gonna need to replace him. And so Owen is going to be that replacement. Now, like I said in my first podcast, I want to make the distinction between enjoying a horror film and appreciating a horror film. So let me first start by telling you what I enjoyed about this movie. The cinematography is very well done. Specifically, I really enjoyed the lighting and the colors in this movie. There's almost... Um, 
like a light sepia tone laced into certain scenes in the movie. This feels very effective, specifically in the scenes where Abby and Owen are talking on that snowy playground inside of their apartment. It sort of juxtaposes a dark tone onto what is often playful banter between two kids, right? Or what you think is two kids. Only one of them's really a kid. But whenever Abby and Owen meet at night and they talk on this playground, the music that plays in the background is also very childlike and innocent. There's always like a light piano going on in the background. So on the one hand, you have these very dense colorations fused with innocent melodies and simple childlike dialogue. It's like the film is trying to tell you that there's a darkness underneath this seemingly pure relationship, almost like an innocence that just hovers around a very shadowy truth that's going to be realized in the film. And so, you know, it's very well shot and it echoes, I think, the larger sentiment of the film, which we'll get into in a minute. And to add to that, I really enjoyed the complexity of Owen and Abby's relationship. And I, and I actually mean something very specific by this. Although the conversations between them are often very simple, which is to be expected, after all, Owen is young, um, you start to see how Abby carefully navigates her way into Owen's needs through those conversations in order to take advantage of him. It's that navigation, the, the looks that she gives Owen, the way she offers Owen advice and, and slowly becomes his protector throughout the film. You can see her doing this from the very beginning. I'm thinking of the scene where Abby tells Owen to strike back at the bullies at school. She tells him to hit back and to not be taken advantage of. So when he finally does that, he comes back to her out of breath and all excited. He's finally defended himself from his bullies. And like she's proud of him. I think this is the first scene where she actually kisses him, right? He's he's starting to look for and find affirmation in Abby. Not his parents, but in Abby. And Abby knows this. Now, I'm I'm sort of jumping the gun here, but when we get into what I appreciate about this movie, I'm going to try and convince you that this entire film is about addiction and codependency. So I'm going to I'm going to kind of smuggle that in now, but I'll get back to that a bit later. For now though, I, I just want to point out how I enjoyed the way in which manipulation manifested itself through subtlety and through through the vehicle of pre-adolescent banter. It was um almost horrifyingly cute if if that makes any sense it was it was like scary but cute i don't know two very different sentiments were sort of perfectly molded together in their dialogue sequences and i really like that now a lot of people um criticize chloe moret's performance in this film for having somewhat of an overly soft and almost monotone voice throughout the film but the more i thought about it the more i rewatched this movie i felt like it actually added to the manipulative undertones of the film right so there, there's something much creepier and maybe even more sadistic about an antagonist that has devilish motives but conveys them in a soft and non-emotional way and and this is magnified by the fact that Abby looks like a child. So in other words, it's scary when someone yells at you, but it's it's even scarier when you expect them to yell, but they're seemingly calm and detached. And so you have this creature who's, who's really a monster at the end of the day, but whose voice is soft and calm throughout the majority of the movie. So, I mean, I really didn't see that as a criticism. I think it actually magnified the effect of Abby being an insidious creature. Now, I didn't really think this film was scary, like at all. I mean, at least not in the traditional sense. I mean, Abby does kill a few people in the film. There's some close-ups on her face when she's in vampire mode. There's a, a really nasty scene where one of the people that she bites becomes a vampire and bursts into flames when sunlight enters the room. That was pretty nasty. I mean, these were all decent scenes, but not really things that scared me. What made this movie scary was the relationship between Owen and Abby. And here's where we get into more of the analysis of the film. The real horror of this film is not that vampires exist or that they're out for blood. The horror 
is that Abby is hundreds of years old but depends on others to acquire blood for her. The horror is that she's capable of finding these people to begin with, right? I think that's what this movie is all about. The film flips the idea of a vampire being this creature of the night, free to roam the countryside and prey on whomever they choose. It flips that predatory idea of a vampire and presents you, instead, with a vampire that spends her evenings confined to a small dilapidated apartment with a partner who goes out into the night and gets her what she needs. It, it introduces an element of dependency and, and addiction. You could almost swap out blood for heroin and the pull of the film would remain the same, right? This is a film about the manipulation involved in looking for that kind of fix. Think of the scene where Abby doesn't get her blood, right? Because the old man botches the murder that evening. She goes crazy. She starts banging on the wall and she says, what am I supposed to do now? Do I have to go out there and do it myself? There's a kind of withdrawal and anger if Abby doesn't get her fix. Her stomach gurgles and she acts imprudently and recklessly, going out on her own and carelessly and indiscriminately killing people around where she lives. It's kind of like a heroin junkie who suddenly finds that he doesn't have enough money for his next fix. What does he do? He goes out and he robs his neighbor or he wrongs other people in order to satisfy his craving. I mean, the fix is all that matters, even if it means destroying other people harming people. I mean, hell, even harming those close to you. It's really interesting that in the American version of the film, the old man, the father figure, is left unnamed. However, in the Swedish version, Let the Right One In, and in the book, he's given a name, Hakan. And I feel like this was purposeful. You really get the sense in the American film that the old man is simply a means to an end. He's, he's unimportant, even though it's implied that he's been by Abby's side ever since he was a young child. I mean, this could be like 40 or 50 years we're talking about here. And that's really important. The idea being that relationships, even relationships with longevity, take a back seat when you're an addict. And at the worst of times, they're simply a means to an end, right? The longevity of the relationship is nothing more than an interesting fact in these cases. It, it, it's a black and white photo. I mean, the world of addiction is, is uh, it's truly terrifying. If you've listened to any of the other podcasts that I've done, you know that I mentioned, um, you know, personally that both of my parents were drug addicts. And I can remember, you know, nearly living out the entire scene where Owen hears Abby through the wall yelling at the old man because she didn't get her blood. I'm not saying my parents were vampires, but I mean, I can remember hearing my dad yell at my mom, for example, that, that he wasn't able to get what they needed, right, to get a new stash. I mean, I have a very vivid memory of this. He banged on the wall, just like Abby. He said insulting things to my mom, just like Abby. I mean, he was reckless and committed crimes to which he went to jail in order to satiate his cravings, uh, just like Abby, although Abby didn't go to jail. But you get the point, right? Now, lest you think this interpretation that I'm giving you is really just me projecting my childhood issues, which is which is certainly possible, right? Like, I, I'm open to very different interpretations of this film, and mine is just me working out my stuff. That's very possible. Uh, but I just really felt like this movie had a lot of similarities that tie into addiction, the largest of which is manipulation. Abby is a manipulator through and through in this movie. If you watched this movie and you thought that Abby had any genuine feelings for Owen, you got played. And see, when I watched this film for the first time in the theater, I remember liking the movie in part because of the connection that I thought Abby and Owen had. It was only after like watching the movie a couple more times that I realized that every single scene with them together has some element of her drawing him in. And that's why this film is called Let Me 
in. It's not describing the lore that vampires need to be invited into your house. It's about Abby working her way through Owen's emotional frailty in order to gain control. Now, lest you think this is me just being crazy, consider the following. First, when Abby sees Owen playing with the Rubik's Cube on the playground, she acts like she doesn't know what it is or how to solve it. Yet later on in the movie, we clearly see a, a more archaic version of the Rubik's Cube in her apartment. So she loves puzzles and is clearly familiar with what Owen was playing with. When she leaves the Rubik's Cube for Owen to find, completely solved, he's sort of mesmerized by that, right? She's establishing her intelligence. She could have just as easily said, oh, I know what that is. Here, let me uh, let me show you how to solve it. But it's much more mysterious and it draws you in and it's more interesting to leave it out there for Owen to find completely solved for him. It makes him want to see her again, right? That's the other thing it does. Now, later when she gives Owen advice about how to handle the bullies at school, she establishes that she's strong. I think she actually says, I'm a lot stronger than you think I am, right? I mean, look, Abby's old. She's had enough time to know how to do this. She's clearly done this before with the father figure fellow in the movie. In fact, when the father figure dies later in the film, not only is Abby not emotional about it, the first place she goes to after this happens is Owen's bedroom where she sleeps next to him and agrees to go steady with him. She knows what she needs from Owen and she knows she's gonna need it soon since she has no one left to go out and get blood for her. And it's, it's the little things like this that make you start to see her motivations more clearly. In thinking of Abby's motivations and just the level of duplicity in her character, I mean, it, it bothered me so much that I almost wish I could have just erased every viewing of this film except the first time that I saw it so that I could have just left thinking that Abby really cared about Owen. And the real insidious part of all of this is that every good moment in this film, every playful scene where Abby and Owen seem like they're getting closer has to be cast through the lens of addiction and codependency. I haven't really talked much about the codependency aspect of all of this, but think about Owen for a minute, right? Owen lacks guidance. He lacks fortitude, right? He needs a protector. When he's alone, we see him engaging in some pretty disturbing antisocial behavior. There's a scene where he puts on a mask and pretends he's stabbing someone while he's talking to them, right? He's, he's clearly working through some shit, which we all do. I get it. But uh, not that I do that. That would be horrifying. Um, but... You know, Abby comes along and she gives him what? She gives him friendship and advice and protection and the prospect of love. All things that Owen doesn't get at home. Every time Owen goes to his parents in this movie for help, they're unequipped to help him. When Owen sees uh, Abby, for example, when he sees her true vampire form for the first time, he calls his dad and he asks his dad if his dad believes in evil. He's trying to confide in his father, right? He's seeking guidance. And his dad just shrugs it off as, as Owen being brainwashed by his super religious mom, and he never really gives Owen the light of day. Owen is desperately looking for affection and guidance, and the terror of this movie is that a person can find those things unhealthily that they can find those things in people who cause harm to them and not even know it, right? That they can find what they're looking for and not realize the toxicity that comes hand in hand with it. The best scene in this movie is when Abby kisses Owen with all of the blood on her mouth. Remember that scene? So right before that scene, she's just killed someone in front of Owen for the first time, right? That police officer that we see throughout the movie. Now, Owen doesn't run when this happens. In fact, he's complicit in the murder. And after the kill, Abby puts her bloody arms around Owen and kisses him on the mouth. 
And that is a perfect picture of the horror of addiction and codependency. That bloody kiss is sort of the perfect poetic image for the kind of unhealthy psychological and emotional reliance that two people can adopt under the right, or I guess I should say wrong, circumstances. And I think while most people would describe this scene as the moment where Abby finally catches Owen in her web, I actually think that that happened much earlier in the film. Do you remember the scene where Abby shows Owen what will happen to her uh, if she walks into a house that she hasn't been invited? into. Remember, she starts bleeding profusely, right? And Owen sees the blood trickling down from her head and immediately invites her in to stop the bleeding, right? He throws his arms around her and he's hugging her. And this is very similar to uh, enabling. I mean, I remember watching an episode of Intervention where whenever this guy's wife would show signs of withdrawal, whenever she would show symptoms of pain or withdrawal, he would get her alcohol because he didn't want to see her hurt. He didn't want to see her be in pain. Now, if we go back to the scene with Owen and Abby, Owen asks her, what if I didn't say anything? Would you have kept bleeding? And her response is perfect. Her response is, I knew you wouldn't let me. And to me, this is the moment where Owen's locked in, right? Abby knew that Owen wouldn't let anything bad happen to her. And if you saw this scene as a tender scene between two people who care for each other, you simply got hoodwinked. Now, it gets even more interesting right after the bloody kiss scene that I mentioned, uh, right after the scene where she kills the police officer, because she tells Owen that she has to leave, that she can't stay any longer. And she actually does leave. We see her hopping into a cab and driving off while Owen is weeping in his bedroom window. And this is part of that manipulation. She gives and then she takes. How much more does a person realize they need something when it's purposefully taken away from them? But of course, she comes back later, right? She doesn't really leave. But see, the filmmakers want to make you feel somber about this scene. We see Owen crying from his window and it feeds on your empathy for Owen's needs. I mean, look, think about this logically. We just saw Abby kill an innocent man, right? Her leaving is really the best thing that could be happening to Owen right now. But the film produces an emotional response in you that is antithetical to the health of our protagonist. You essentially get to be complicit as an audience member in this scene, you're essentially part of the problem. I mean, look, nobody's crying for the good guy who spent the entire film trying to solve the crimes around Abby's rampages. The guy who, uh, you know, tried to stop more blood from being shed. Nobody's crying for him even though he was just killed. Nobody's feeling bad for him. They're feeling bad for the boy who sat there and let it happen because he's developed this unhealthy emotional need for a person who's doing nothing but damaging him. I mean, sit back and think about that for a second. It sort of gives you a glimpse into the world of codependency and, and addiction. It's unhealthy for you to feel bad for Owen when he misses Abby, but that's what this scene makes you do, and that's the brilliance of the horror in this film. And so if I could swing back to the very beginning of this podcast, again, the reason I chose to review the American film, even though the Swedish film I think is all around better in my opinion, it's, it's these elements of codependency and addiction I've been discussing. They were much more vibrant and pure to me in the American version. I mean, and look, it very well could be that be, it's because they're speaking my language, right? All of, all of the little intricacies that make up the dance between Owen and Abby are a bit more palatable because I use the same words. I, uh, you know, I speak English. I understand immediately what they're saying. There's no text filter through which I need to understand what's going on in the movie. So perhaps that's the case, but that's why I chose to review this version. So in the end of this film, Owen and Abby run off together, and he's presumably going to be the next person who gets her blood. So if I could summarize anything like a lesson from this movie, it would be to be extremely mindful of why you're attracted to somebody else, to, to understand that we have the propensity as human beings to be attracted to people for bad reasons. We have voids 
that other people can fill, whether knowingly or unknowingly. Now, Owen's kind of young, right? And to an extent, he's a victim of circumstances and hasn't really developed to the point, I think, where he can internalize and introspect. I mean, that's certainly possible, but for you and I, right? For us brilliant folks who clearly think we're smart enough to analyze horror movies, we have no excuse. We, we just have no excuse for this. It, it, it's really funny, after watching this movie, I noticed that I like became more suspect of my relationships. Like my wife, for example, after I watched this movie, asked if I could run down the street to Starbucks and get her some coffee, which I do on occasion. I kind of do it in the morning if I'm going to get um, stuff from the store. And like, I swear to God, for like a moment, I started to wonder if I was like, am I being controlled by my wife and I'm not knowing it? And then I started to catch myself doing this with all my other relationships. And I'm like, it was just really weird, right? Like, am I being Owen trying to go kill coffee beans for my clearly caffeine addicted wife? Like this movie really messed with my head. Um, and I think that was, that's the, the draw of it. That's the brilliance of it. I think that's why I like this movie. There's something about movies that sort of stick with you. They do something to you after you leave. They scar you in ways that are tangible and, and in this case, psychological. So yeah, you know, just make sure that you don't find yourself with an Abby, for God's sakes. I mean, analyze your relationships. That's the point of this movie. Critique your motivations. Like, be honest with yourself. Stop giving vampires their blood, for God's sakes. But don't take my word for it. Uh, let me bring you into a discussion that I had with three other people much smarter than me on the topic of this film. We sat down and discussed what we liked and disliked about the film, as well as our various different interpretations of it. And these guys are all just philosophically minded. So if you enjoyed my interpretation, I'm sure you'll enjoy theirs as well. So with that said, let's let's get some of their opinions on this also. All right, well, welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast. I think this is our third roundtable now. Wow, I feel like I feel like we're pros at this point. Uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, a horror movie, maybe even two, I guess. We're going to kind of jump between two versions of kind of the same film. I hope I can say that without getting trashed. Um, a, a Swedish film called Let the Right One In. It's about vampires, or a vampire, I should say. And an American version of that same film that came out two years later uh, called Let Me In. And there's some key differences between the two films. So really what we want to do today is for part of the discussion, explore some of the differences and how that affects sort of what we draw and what we pull from the films. And then also kind of discuss really just what these movies are about. I, the, I, I'm really excited about this, this discussion specifically because... The last film that we talked about, and I think some of our intro to horror that we did in our first podcast, we talked about films that had very um, obvious and very specific elements that we could draw. So, for example, in the It Follows uh, discussion, you know, the film sort of, to all of us, was about the same sort of thing. It was about death, and it was about uh, adolescence and sexuality. These were things that we sort of all agreed on fairly quickly. Um, but this film has the propensity to be a little different. There may be some disagreement in this uh, in this one, and I'm kind of looking forward to pursuing that a little bit. Um, I have yet to see an interpretation of this film that is like mine, and that's rare for me. I almost feel dumb. I feel like I'm going to sort of like talk about this film in a way that's not going to make sense to anybody. I, I think Josh holds some of the same views that I do, uh, so I may not be alone. We may be the only people who feel this way. But anyway, I went to Google, and like I was looking for analysis of this film. I was looking for reviews that talked about the way I sort of view what these movies are about, and I found very little. So that's rare. Uh, so either I'm doing something incredibly ingenious or I'm a fucking idiot, and it may be the latter. So let's see. Let's see what you guys think. Um, so uh, I'm going to introduce – I have two people today with me. I probably should introduce you guys first. Uh, the first is Josh, who uh, likes Let Me In. He's seen – I think Josh actually read the book. So Josh is going to be our scholar here for the evening because I have actually not <laughs> read the book. Uh, but I have seen the Swedish film and I've seen 
uh, the American film. And then we're also here with Shayra, who's been on the last two uh, last couple podcasts. And so I'm just going to throw out this question. Uh, I'll start. I guess I'll start with Josh. Uh, what did you think of the American film? Let me in. Just pure thoughts from the very beginning. Just general thoughts about the movie. Okay, it's it's difficult to separate the the thoughts from the American film when you have the book and you have the Swedish film in mind. Uh, I saw the American film after I saw uh, the Swedish film and after I read the book. And it is so much a departure from both of those films um, that it's kind of difficult to, it was difficult for me to enjoy it. It was difficult for me to get into it. Um, The movie itself, I think that it was shot well. I think that uh, cinematically it worked. But I, I, my, my, well, I guess we'll probably get into the the problems later, but I thought it was, it was, it was a mediocre film at best. That's interesting. I mean, yeah. So like, just before I even jump to Shayra, like it had, let the right one in the Swedish version has a 98% of Rotten Tomatoes, which is unbelievably high for horror films. And then uh, the American version has an 88%, which is also uh, very high. And I, you said something that I'm, I'm, we're going to kind of get to, which is which film you see first. I think it dictates a lot about which you're going to enjoy. Um, but we'll get into that in a second. So what about you, Shara? Did you see both? Did you see just the American? What did you think? Of the I American? saw both. Um, I saw the Swedish version a long time ago, seen it many times since then. And um, I was afraid to watch the American version because I thought <laughs> it would be garbage. And the only reason why I watched it was uh, because you, you recommended it. So um, it wasn't horrible. I, I really love Hit Girl, so, I mean, seeing her in a different role was fun. Um, she's an amazing actress for a child actor, so um, and so was the boy who was in it as well. They were excellent actors, so one of the things I hate about most films with kids is the kids can never act, and y- yeah. you just, all you're doing is thinking, why is this kid here like it's i can't even tell this is a movie or or get absorbed into it like i'm just sitting here analyzing their bad acting did not do that with this film so the kids were excellent actors but once again i watched the swedish version a long time ago many times and i prefer it definitely to the american version yeah so let me uh i I mentioned this in the podcast that i'm i'm doing now on uh on let me in i'm dedicating it solely to the american version but i'll kind of try really quickly to just explain to you guys why I chose the American version. Um, I saw the American version first, so that's kind of weird. Um, I saw the American version first. Uh, saw the American version first, and liked it. Went back and watched the Swedish version and liked it more. Right. So I enjoy. I actually agree with Josh and with and with you that the uh, Swedish version overall, I think, is a better film. It's shot better. I enjoy the tones better. The music is better. Just everything about the film was more enjoyable. The connection between the main I was gonna say protagonist but the main characters I felt very heavily in the Swedish film but the American version did something for me that the Swedish version didn't and it was I got more of the elements of like codependency and addiction I got more of that from the American version of the film than I did from the Swedish version and it is probably because I speak English so I spent like the first 15 minutes of my podcast I should say 15 I spent like the first few minutes of my podcast trying to get defend myself essentially and get people to understand that like i love foreign horror movies i love movies that have subtitles they, they don't bother me i'm not like an american idiot who just can't watch shit with subtitles but i think for the the 
for the sort of conversation that arose between the two characters and sort of their interaction and what it says about codependency and addiction, it felt more palatable to me that they were speaking my, I felt like I got it more, essentially. I felt like it was more raw to me and I could empathize a little more heavily because they were speaking my language. So when I say that, I run the risk of sounding like an idiot who's basically saying, ah, you know, he only, he only likes it because he's an American. He doesn't watch those foreign films. And that's not entirely true. So I, I know most people disagree with that, right? Like a Josh is going to look at me and say, no, he probably got the sweet, he probably got those elements more from the Swedish film. I, I just did it. I just did it. I, th I think it's crazy uh, because the, okay. So, so Oscar's character uh, was a, an incredibly important part of all of this um, because it, it, he had to portray this, uh, this adolescent who was coming into his own, who was getting bullied at school by pretty nasty bullies and was having his first thoughts about sexuality, all those kind of things. He's growing up. And to be able to, to be able for the, for the actor to be able to capture that uh, and do it well in the film was a critical aspect of it. And I think the Oscar in the American version was terrible. I don't think that he did a good job. I think he was bad at it. I think that um, that the real film came out and then an imposter came in and painted all over all of the, <laughs> over, over everything that needs to be done. Like, okay, so we've got to make him get bullied. So we're going to do that in a very obvious way. We've got to make him be an adolescent and uh, want to be enjoying girls here. Let's paint that and make that very obvious. Like it almost feels like it almost feels like the American film was dumbed down. I agree for the, for the audience, and the real piece of art was the Swedish film. And so it's like it's like looking at uh, a Rembrandt and not seeing all the qualities of the Rembrandt in the Rembrandt and saying, that's not a fucking Rembrandt. That's some imposter uh, masquerading as a piece of art. So, and there was a lot of that in that film. It wasn't just with uh, Oscar's character. It was with everyone else. I mean, the, when, when she, when she bites the, the passersby and, uh, and you know, the, the, the entire, uh, her being twisted and turning into a vampire in in the Swedish film was very well done. In the American film, it was just terrible. Uh, the effects of the yeah, the effects of the American film were awful. They were awful. They were not even barely passable. So that was one of the things that really threw me off about the American film. That did not throw me off about the Swedish film because they used different kinds of effects and they used wires and they used things that made it uh, that that they were actually able to film the action of the movie without having it entirely be C CGI. Like the scene where she's crawling up the hospital wall and um, was just like, come on, really? Did somebody draw that on there? And, and like, you're ruining the film for me. This is bad. So um, there were, I think that the American film had a lot of moments that just threw me off. It wasn't just like, okay, I'm watching this as the American version of this film. It was, oh, that's terrible. Why didn't that get edited out? That part is awful you're 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 trying way too hard like in the beginning where he's got the mask on he's like yeah you know you want to get stuck and uh in the other one it was just more visceral more real more adolescent it felt like i was in the room with my brother you know in the swedish version and i felt like i was looking at some car crash with the american so i i definitely think looking back at both of these films the american film was unnecessary 
Right, I'll start with that. It was, it was unnecessary. The Swedish film was great. There are some, like most of the American remake is a is actually almost a shot for shot redoing of the Swedish film. I was surprised that the majority of the scenes are almost exactly taken from Let the Right One In. I, I didn't know that until I went back and watched the Swedish version again right after watching the American version. Like literally the same shots and almost the exact same dialogue. One of the other things that I heard uh, when I was Googling this, I read something about this, and now I, I feel bad for not like pursuing it a little more, but basically there was some controversy about the Swedish subtitles being dubbed in English that they even dumbed down the language. So in other words, when they were like transcribed, when they were yeah, put, when the subtitles were put onto the DVD, the ways in which sentences were described were, were essentially these simpler words, I, I guess, which kind of goes to what you're saying. Uh, Josh, that like it, it felt like a um, like a minus one version, like a diet version of the same thing. I totally get that. Um, I'm very I'm very open to that interpretation. Uh, and I I can I probably be sitting here agreeing with you if I if I had watched the Swedish uh, version first. What about you, Sherry? Do you feel the same way? Yeah, uh, I wrote notes while I was watching the American version, and um, most of them were jokes making fun of it um, <laughs> um my daughter and i were were laughing our butts off the cgi was so horrendous just so bad i can't even we were laughing so hard it was a comedy for us um, especially like he said the crawling up the hospital walls yeah. we were laughing so hard and um also the noise noises when she was eating sounded like she was slurping soup it was it was hilarious we were laughing throughout the the sound effects and the cgi the snow was fake the snow was so unbelievably fake i mean he's eating now and laters and you see him like putting dust over the wrappers and i'm like this is ridiculous i i understand that fake snow is used a lot in movies but it's not necessary and the swedish version had real looking snow or, or was real snow and, and i think that adds to the elements of the blood getting into the snow and mm. and making it scary and frightening and lonely and uh, empty feeling as, as opposed to looking like a set in a play for a kid's play. Um, it, it took away from the film so much with all the fake stuff. And here's the thing, CGI can look amazing. There are so many films that do amazing CGI and this one did not do it. It was horrible, horrible CGI and horrible fake everything. The blood didn't even look that good. I, that's another, th I'm a huge fan of fake blood and I like it to look really good. I didn't think their blood was good. Um, I, I'm trying to think, oh, the other thing, the when, when the woman was in the hospital and they moved the curtains and she lit on fire, that fire was so fake looking. It's so it's like, ridiculous. Like Adobe looking. After Effects, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I could do better in Adobe After After Effects. I really do. Um, it was so bad. So it took away from it because part part of that movie was a comedy to Kylie and I. We're sitting yeah, there laughing. Yeah, which is bad, right? I mean, like, the film had a higher budget, well, a much higher budget than the Swedish uh, version of the film. Uh, it was almost like they Donald Trumped it. You know what I mean? Like, they took a great piece of art and, like, to get you to understand it, like, they dumbed it down. I, I, I agree with you. I, I Totally understand that. And the snow, I think that one of the things you mentioned is important, not just the fact that the snow looked less real, but um, one of the things that I, I noted is that the the snow sort of reflected the changes in the atmosphere of both films, right? So that was me trying to segue. Um, so like the snow, the snow in the uh, in the Swedish version tends to fall slower. It's a lot. Um, it's a lot more calming, which I think adds to the sense of dread throughout the entirety of the movie. Whereas in the American version, it's very fast and it's chaotic, and like you said, it doesn't look real. So it has the effect of sort of cheapening the the atmosphere of the film, 
And then also just giving a completely different sort of vibe to when you see them talking out in the playground, for example, or going out on a date, um, which I thought was unnecessary. I mean, it's like they, they took some of the things that made the Swedish version great, and those were the things that they decided to change. But they kept other things in that seemed kind of unnecessary and did a shot-for-shot -shot remake of them. So that was kind of weird to me. Um, I, I completely agree with you guys. Um, again, I think the only reason I really, I really pulled for the American to do a review from it is I where I and where I disagree with Josh is I felt like the uh, the the addictive elements and the codependency stuff was a lot more richer in the American version. So let me give you one of the reasons why I think that um, in the Swedish version there's a much heavier adult presence. So you have those people at the bar. Right, you have the lady with the cats. There's more adults in uh, functioning in in the Swedish film. Oscar, for example, has a better relationship with his mom and with his dad when his dad's not drinking. In the Swedish version, in the American version, the adults are distant and they're aloof. And and Owen, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, you know, sort of looks look, he looks in on adults. Right? What is he doing when he's in his room? He's using that uh, telescope and looking in, they're, they're, they're distant from him. And I think that adds to his isolation. It adds to the fact that he's, he's got a gap. He's got a void that needs to be filled. And Abby's going to fill it, right? Or Ellie's going to fill it. And I felt that draw a little heavier in the English version because of just little subtleties like that. I guess they're not really even subtleties. Just differences in the way it was filmed and decisions made about what to keep in and what to take out. Um, you, know what I, you know what I wrote down? Yeah. Um, I said uh, I, I said that the mom was blurred out and distorted in a lot of scenes in this film, and it reminds me of It Follows, and I said maybe these films are so, uh, maybe Noah's so drawn to these films because he also feels that kind of loneliness and emptiness from the adults in his life from his childhood, so maybe that's why he's more drawn to It Follows and to this version of uh, Let Me In or whatever. Like, I, I, I'm just psychoanalyzing you based on this now. Please so. send. Please, <laughs> I wrote it down. I know that was like a. I literally was about to take a drink, and then I th thought for a moment. And I'm like, I was gonna make a joke, but then I realized like you're probably right. No, that's a that's a really good point. I maybe that's what it is, right? Maybe I'm working out my stuff. Let me like turn off my camera and start weeping. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are even some sequences with the mom. I think in particular. Uh, is blurred out kind of like it follows in a lot of sequences that's that's wild yeah and um, there's a scene and that this is the scene that made me write this down about you but um there's a scene where you see the mom and she looks really weird and distorted and i was like this this is almost exactly like it follows mom um so and then there's you know the alcohol references and things like that too so it's it's substance abuse and yeah you know fading into the background and the adults are just not not necessarily caretakers. Wow, you know, as, as introspective as I consider myself and as, as, as uh, loud as I like to be about how well I know myself, I literally did not put that together. That is a really, really wild thing to think about. I'm going to be thinking about that as soon as we turn this off. That is really interesting. Um, I have no idea how to segue out of that, so someone needs to say something else because that is I, well, you, you talked about the, um, the codependency aspect of this film, and I think that that is the most important part of this entire story because once you get it once you understand that her companion was once a boy who she seduced and that they were in love for a period of time and you know it it always ends you realize that she's in this cycle of manipulation she needs another caretaker and she knows that this is the vehicle to do it but she's 
but she's torn about it, which is fantastic to me that she's not like deliberately going out there and like, I don't give a fuck, whatever. It doesn't matter. This is what I need to survive. It was, they gave her some, this vampire, some humanity, which I think is, is amazing. You know, I think it's incredible that, that she felt badly about having to do this to, to boys that were apparently her age and going forward into the future, kind of trap them into this love with her that she knows is futile, that she knows uh, will end one day in somebody's horribly scarred acid face, sucking all their blood out before they're dead. She knows that that's the end. So I think that I think that part of what made Ellie's character amazing to me, especially in the Swedish version, which was just brilliantly acted, brilliantly fucking acted, was to show that kind of adult perspective or to be able to act from that kind of adult perspective as a juvenile, which I was just amazed at. And, and the, the book, uh, the reason why I think the Swedish version represents the book more, it, it's kind of like watching Schindler's List, right? You watched it once and you're like, you're, you hit the end of the movie and you're like, God, fuck that, God, fucking movie. Ah, oh, it just killed me. And, um, you know, five years later, you revisit it, dipped as the same fucking movie. Get it out of here. Um, it, it fills you with a sense of dread the entire time. Nothing can happen in that movie without you feeling that uh, impending doom, you know. And I think that that's what the Swedish film uh, really captured about the book because the book is far more dark than either of the two movies. It goes into the sexual relationship that she has with her caretakers. It goes into like all kinds of different aspects of pedophilia and uh, and vampirism. It, it talks about stuff in great detail. If you haven't read the book, I highly recommend you reading it. But I think that it really – Let the Right One In was one of the movies that I think from the perspective of the original story told the best story in film. And it used it through art and amazing acting, which is which is why I love it so much. But that codependency aspect of the film is the entire point of the book, Let the Right One In and Let Me In. That whole thing all surrounds that. And I, I didn't want to feel like it was in my face the whole time. I wanted to, to gradually get that out of it, which I did with Let the Right One In. But with Let Me In, it was kind of like, Okay, it's right in your face. It's this is what the story is. This is where we're going with it. And it and it didn't let me think for myself. Yeah, that's interesting. I was going to point out the difference of a major difference between the two films is that um you're right. Ellie, there's a sense of a little bit more of remorse uh in Ellie than there is in in Abby. With Abby in the American version, she has zero remorse. I mean, her face, she is never remorseful at any point in that entire film. Like, at now when I go back and I look at the film, the American film, right, every sequence with Abby and Owen has some element of her trying to manipulate his emotional frailty. Every single scene. So I had a debate with this person who swore that even by the end of the film, right, this is one of the most heated debates I've ever had in my life. I actually, like, I'm not friends with the guy anymore, and this part of the reason is this debate. He actually argued that their relationship was in part healthy and that it was like a really loving, there was still love in there between both of them, not just from Owen to Abby, but Abby to Owen. And I, it's just, if that's what you walk away with when you watch this movie, you have been fucking played. You have been had, right? Everything about this movie is about the fact that you can love someone and fall for someone and be 
uh, uh, pushed to someone for all the wrong reasons, that you have the psychological capacity to not understand the voids that you have and to let people who shouldn't be filling them fill them and to be, you know, to, to be connected to those people and need to feed their addiction, right? I, I mentioned in my podcast, I was watching Intervention like a year ago on, on television, and there was a guy who his wife was addicted to alcohol. I mean, just awfully addicted to the point where she was going to die within a year. And whenever she would start to get withdrawals, he would give her alcohol. He just felt bad, and he didn't, you know, he didn't want to take her in and do it the right way, so he would just give her a bottle of vodka, right? And I mean, and to me, it's like there's something like that in this film. There's you could almost swap out blood for heroin, right? In the American film, and and I think a lot of the pool would still be the, be the same. No, I mean this is this is one of the things that I kind of enjoy about the whole entire story is when you see that there's that element of substance abuse or that element of manipulation in a relationship, and a lot of people might look at that and go, "Aw." I mean, this is, but this is what normal people do. You know, people tend to get in toxic relationships all the time uh, and think that it's a good relationship for them. So that happens all the time. So it, I don't think it's that far off for people to interpret it that way because some people can't interpret relationships properly. But it is kind of sad in a way because then you're wondering what kind of relationship this guy has if he's arguing that. It's fucking crazy to me. It's, that's why it's a horror film. Mm Mm-hmm. That is absolutely why it's a horror film, because this person, well, in the book and in the Swedish film, she did feel remorse about having to do this, but she knew she needed to do it. She deliberately manipulated this person who was weak, who got bullied, who had, who didn't have the constitution for friends or being outgoing or was socially awkward. She knew exactly who she needed going forward, and she picked him because she knew that he would be her caretaker forever or for as long as he would be alive. And that is what is terrifying about the movie to me. Yeah. I, this movie, the vampire shit was not nowhere near the stuff that was supposed to be scary. At least that's what I got from this, uh, especially in the American version. I, I, I almost wished all of the scenes where Abby turned into a vampire would just, I like I could fast forward them and just get to their dialogue sequences because I felt like, that's where I was starting to feel uneasy. I was starting to feel like something was amiss, like something was wrong, right? Like, like you, you had secondhand embarrassment for the fucking <laughs> terrible CGI, is what it was. Like, get, get, get it out of here. I don't want to see this part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that, but you're totally right. Like, that's to me. That's why it's a horror film. That's absolutely right to me. One of the things that I thought was really interesting, that sort of magnified why I felt the pull more from the American version, is that they never name the father figure of Abby in the American version, right? In, in the book and in the uh, let, let the Right One, and he has a name, he has a background. And in the American version, he, you don't even know his name. You, have, you really have no idea about his background other than he's in a black and white photo with Abby. And I felt like that was extremely purposeful. Judging all of the other things we've been saying so far, I could probably completely be wrong by that, and it's probably a happy coincidence because they had no idea what the fuck they were doing when they made the American version, but whatever. Um, he didn't have a name. And I felt like that really, to me, that sort of spoke to the fact that relationships can take a back seat when you're in these kind of toxic relationships, when you're in a relationship where one person, for example, is addicted to drugs. When a person is so addicted to drugs, it doesn't matter how long you've been with someone else, you will use them as a means to an end. And that was magnified by the fact that we just didn't know this guy's name. I mean, that's kind of like saying it doesn't matter if you've been with Abby or Ellie for 30, 40 years, right? Uh, you're not important. You're a means to an end. And there's a very um, 
very heavy degree of truth in that when you when you look at relationships where there are one or more parties addicted to substances, um, addicted to drugs rather. So I don't know, I thought that was an interesting difference that uh, one of the few things I liked about the American version more than the Swedish version. Hmm. I, you, what, there was one thing that really pissed me off above all the other things, and it's, a, and it's the stupid subtlety that pissed me off. But in the Swedish version, when Oscar goes into their apartment, she's got all this stuff, right? She's got the money. She's got all kinds of stuff that she's collected, and there's this really mysterious, cool fucking thing that she says, she looks over at him, she, she says, uh, that's, you know, that could buy uh, this whole city or something if you were to sell it. And it was this awesome thing. And I was looking for those things in her apartment in, in the American version, and she just had a bunch of bullshit. She had like a couple of puzzles and nothing that was interesting. And I was like, that to me, it's a crucial aspect of this because she's still got to lure him in. She's still at that point luring him. I mean, she's she's got her claws in him, but it's part of the movie and part of the book for that matter that really mystifies Oscar. It really mystifies me. It's like, holy shit, this is real. She's really this fucking special person. And, and he hasn't even, he hasn't, when she said, I'm not really a man, uh, or I'm not really, what would you do if I wasn't, uh, or wasn't a girl or I'm not really a woman? Um, that, that, that is just, that's, it went into his head and just bounced right out. It doesn't matter. Like and and I guess the American version it did a little bit too, but he still that aspect of it he still needed to be drawn in. He still needed to, she still needed to build the fantasy in him in order to manipulate him to fall in love with her. Yeah, the other the other thing that exact scene did is it it magnified the flip that these two films and the book give you about what it means to be a vampire, right? Because you have this idea of vampires when you think of this sort of general mythology of them as these creatures of the night that are like free to roam the countryside, attack whomever they choose, they live freely, right? Um, and you have that entire thing flipped where now you have vampires that are isolated to a rundown apartment where everything is dark and somber and and there's it's it's like you're living in a in a, a a home with addicts, right? But at the same time, Ellie has one of these things that she could clearly sell to sort of not be in a situation like that, um, which I thought to me kind of impressed even more so the, the 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 odd flip that this movie gives you about what it means to be a vampire, right? It it, it hones in on that perspective that's specifically about the need for blood. That that's what I got from that. Um, the other thing is I like the idea of it not being the same fucking puzzle, like in the American version. You go into the home and it's a Rubik's cube, right? Like in the Swedish version, it's not a Rubik's cube. The thing they're playing with earlier, right? In the American version, is the thing the sort an archaic version of the same toy when he goes in. And I just thought, I, you you could not try to be telling me any more clearly what you're trying to tell me. Like I I'm I, I may be dumb because it took me a couple times to get this from your film, but I'm not that dumb. I thought that the part where they repeated the the elements that they would show later on was unnecessary. I thought that they that, that you could have cut out a lot of the initial elements and then just let the viewers sort of discover those on their own rather than coming upon them a second time and going, oh, look, look, that's what was going on, you know? Um, but other than that, I thought it was very well shot. Um, I would believe you when you say that there's that it's shot for shot identical to the to its predecessor in a lot of ways. It had a very comic book like feel to me in the way that it was framed. It was framed in in a very specific way, and almost every shot was lit with a very high contrast. 
um, such that if you were to, you know, run it through a filter or whatever, you could get that comic book look really easily. It would look really sharply defined. It would look like, um, you know, Sin City or what have you almost, you know, it's an extremely high contrast film. Again, as with uh, It Follows, I was really impressed with the performances of the relatively young actors. Um, I thought I've always, uh, I'm almost always disappointed with, uh, you know, people in the, you know, 18 and under set as far as uh, acting performances because they just don't have enough life experience to replicate other roles that well, usually. Um, but these kids uh, really brought it home. It was really nice. Um, I thought it was kind of funny how they actually went to like really extreme lengths to, although it's a, it's a sort of a romance between the two main characters. Um, I thought, I think it was really funny how they took, like took pains to avoid showing anything that could potentially be considered titillating or what have you. Like they show, they, they framed the shots and then they just made sure that everything was erased. You know, everything was blurred out or blacked out or what have you. I do think that there's a lot of, uh, you know, contemporary framing as far as the codependency goes. Um, but as far as sort of the primal scream of the film, to to not put too fine a point on it, um, I think that it was very um, Romeo and Juliet slash Hatfield and McCoy kind of thing. You know, it's about, it, it's it's not, it's a, it may be about drugs indirectly, but more directly, it's about how humans always fuck their relationships up horribly and end up in relationships that like don't make sense or that they shouldn't be in or that are damaging to them or you know are tragic in some way. And so that's what I mean when I say Romeo and Juliet. It's very, it's very, you know, um, um Abby is, you know, very much a capulet or what have you. You know what I mean? Um where we're from two different worlds, um, we are drawn to one another in some way, it cannot be, um, but we're going to try and make it work, but it's going to end up in this, like, really tragic way anyway, and our, you know, our, our movement toward one another is going to erode our, our potential in some way. So let me interject right there. Do you really think that Abby was drawn to Owen. This is the this is the debate of this film. This is the this is the, the I think the disagreement. Do you really think that at all Abby was drawn to Owen? Um yeah, I think I think this is one of these things where it's it's a both and rather than an either or. Um I think that I think that this is one of those elements where um almost totemically you end up choosing your next host, so to speak. You know what I mean? Like this this is this is an organism uh, Abby is an organism um, with a very specific sort of lifestyle. You know, can't have sunlight, requires a certain amount of food, looks like the food. You know, blah blah blah. blah. Um, and so one of the one of the rules of her universe is that she's got the you know a caretaker, a butler, so to speak, an Alfred, right? And so she goes through life with Alfred, and that's how she manages. Um, and so when Alfred dies, you find a new Alfred. You know, it's like Robin. There's more than one Robin in the Batman series. Um, you know, you, when, when one Robin leaves, then you find another Robin. Um, but it's not, you don't just, you know, put out a casting call or whatever. You know what I mean? There's, there's, an, element of, there's an element of mutual connection. You find someone else who connects with you in a particular way that reminds you of the old Robin. 
and then now you're bound together and now you're going to walk together through life. I, I, I'm going to differ uh, almost entirely with that um, because I don't think the, I, I think that the only thing that she saw that was alluring about her new host was that uh, she could manipulate him into, into feeding her. I think that's all there was. I don't think that there was any love. I don't think there was any compassion. I don't think there was any devotion. I don't think that, that there was any allure. I don't think there was anything emotional on Ellie's side uh, to want to be with this person. I think she identified the proper host and she manipulated the proper host uh, into staying with her for the rest of his life. Uh, and when he reached a certain point or couldn't perform his duties anymore, then he was just discarded, which is, which is kind of what happened throughout the entire course of the film. And I think that the only thing that she felt or the only thing that they tried to portray her to feel uh, in the Swedish movie and in the book uh, was remorse for having, ha having to do this so many times. But they also expressed it in the book as frustration of having to do it so many times, which is why she appears to be so melancholy and um, can, uh, can fit into that role as the, as the manipulator. Um, but so, yeah, it's a mixture of frustration and, a, a, a smidge of remorse, but as far as a feeling of a connection or love or allure, anything of that sort, I think it is, I think it is entirely absent. Well, where I would, where I drew that from was the, where the previous Alfred, you know, um, pours acid on his face to avoid being identified um and that's an that's an incredible uh, act of like self-sacrifice right it's an act of loyalty right it's it's maybe even an ultimate act of loyalty um and so you have to ask yourself why would he do this for her because right? and yeah it's not, it's not accounted for in the film why he would do this for her what their connection was such because it's because she specifies he's not her father we don't know what their relationship is other than that and yet he's got this supreme loyalty he's willing not only to kill for her right he's but but it but he's also willing to mutilate himself and go through incredible agony for an extended period of time for her he's willing to suffer for her and so why is he so devoted what what is it that is binding him to her what is it that is binding them together and so, yeah i, th I think that's why it's the guy's think old, you know? Yeah, I, so I think it's why it's a horror even, film. Because the the reason why he's devoted to her is because she has made him devoted to her, so he'll continue to serve her and to serve her needs. She, they're, they're, they're the only, the, she can make him believe that she has this connection. She manipulates him into believing that there's this connection. So that's what he owns. He feels that he is devoted in that way. Uh, to the point of self-sacrifice and self-mutilation because he's not a vampire. He hasn't experienced this kind of thing before, and she knows what works, which is why she manipulates him and why she knows who to choose, what, especially in the character of Oscar. Now, I, I think that when it comes to the manipulations and stuff, a lot of us can relate because I think a lot of us have been manipulated in that way. We've fallen for people's traps in that way before, and it can be really sad it's a sad thing but sometimes even when you know that you're doing it or they're doing it you still go with it even even though you know and i think that's the most interesting and scary part of the movie is that he kind of he had to have realized that that was what was happening to him but he was like eh, i like her whatever um
Yeah, that's even worse, right? Like, yeah. You realize you are being taken advantage of. You got like that. Yeah. Is the whole that's the whole fucking. Yeah. Right and there. that's 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 when the truly terrifying moment happens when you realize that this other guy had been in the exact same situation. He has to know where his end is now. He has to know what mm-hmm. his future holds for him, and he's like, eh. Yeah, I, like yeah, I, 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 yeah, I need. I, well, I think in a, in a deeper level too. Yeah, I think he he doesn't understand that he needs the things that she's offering. Right, like he's drawn to them in a certain way. I I, I agree with Josh just with the level of duplicity between Abby and Ellie. Um, a true story. As soon as I got done watching this movie, my wife asked me to go get coffee for her at Starbucks, and I was just like, I looked at her and I was like, I st- I just overanalyzed everything for that day. I overanalyzed my conversations with her my phone call with my friends. Uh, I had a buddy ask me for money. It's never happened to me in my life. Like I literally have never had a friend ask me for money. The moment that that movie was over, I had a friend ask me for money and I was like, he's like a good friend. So I was like, am I being taken advantage of? Like, like, should I go get my wife coffee? Like she has a caffeine addiction, like Ellie and Abby, like I, all this shit's going through my head. And I, I really was interesting because it really makes you, I think the, the applicable part of it, right, is to be, is to understand that we have the, I think I said this earlier, we have the propensity to be attracted to people for the wrong reasons and to fall into traps without realizing we're falling into them, without seeing our, ment- our mental frailty, our psychological frailty. Most people don't think about these things. And, and, you know, the fact that you could be a thoughtful person and miss this stuff is scary. But the fact that, like, most people probably will ro- go their lives not ever even thinking about this as something that's possible that they could be doing that they're not uh, understanding that they're doing, that's, that's really scary to me. I don't know. Well, and, and you actually see these kinds of relationships in reality. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've heard the story of a woman who is extremely obese, can't even move off the couch, and she has a partner who's just continuously feeding her more and more and more food, like buys her tons and tons of food, and she gets bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, and they have to get a wall cut out to remove her from the building to get her the help she needs after that. And it, it's, it's the exact same kind of relationship. You're enabling this person. You know they have a problem. You know they're not good for you. You know they're using you, and you stay in those relationships. So it, it's part of reality. They took a fictional horror element to it, but it is horrifying in a way because – you're enabling someone and you're hurting other people based off of that too. There's a couple scenes that really play with you in this regard. So um, the scene at the, the end of the movie where Abby kills the police officer and then she tells Owen, look, I got to leave, right? That is manipulative in and of itself, right? She gives and then she takes away, clearly, right? And she knows she's got Owen already, so she leaves. And that scene where she leaves, she gets into the cab by herself. You see Owen upstairs, and I, I believe this is the same version. The same thing happens in um, Let the Right One In. But you see uh, Owen... Um, weeping and crying and and he's unbelievably uh, he's just broken by this and I remember the first time watching the film feeling bad too like I felt bad for Owen I felt like I, I felt bad that he didn't have Abby anymore and I went back and thought about it and I thought how fucked up is that that as an audience member I, I'm almost complicit now that I look back and I go because think about it like Abby's the worst thing that could happen to Owen the worst possible thing that could happen to, to Owen is Abby coming into his life. And yet you feel bad for him. The film makes you feel bad for him. It makes you feel somber that his only friend, his only person um, that he can confide into throughout the film, his only buddy uh, leaves, leaves him. And I thought, I look back on that and I thought that was a, that was just very well done in terms of how it was shot and how it was written because it made me feel bad. And the fact that I feel bad about it, it's kind of like part of the lesson. I think that's part of the lesson in there is that this, it's, it's that easy. For some unknown reason, the bully, I feel he was 
a homosexual that was hating on other homosexuals or people he perceived to be homosexual or was using homophobia to like hide his homosexuality because there was a lot of homophobic crap he was throwing around at this kid um, and then on top of it, it it when he was or when Owen was talking to the predator she was like what if I wasn't a girl there was all these weird little elements where I'm like I wonder if they're throwing that in there in the American version trying to throw in the uh what homophobia does when you're trying to figure out your sexuality, when you're trying to figure out who you're attracted to during that time in, the, in that age. But then it might just have been a fluke and just no, randomness. I think that's right. I think that uh, they did another thing in the American version that they didn't do in the other version, which was um, they kind of showed the element of the bully being beaten up by his older brother at home a in the American version. And, the, and in, in the Swedish version, that didn't exist. The bully was the bully. And he had a brother who was a criminal and and who, you know, could kill Oscar. Um, but in the American version, I don't think their dynamic worked at all. You know, his buddies were like, hey, what are you doing? You know, we, we got to go to class like and and he seemed uh, really melodramatic in his acting. I th in the American version, I think the bully was one of the worst acted parts in that film. Um, but they did try to explain that, and I think that, that that's interesting, and it's something that I hadn't considered about the latent homosexuality. Uh, but also, it, I, and they did try to overtly state that this was a troubled kid, and here's the reason why this kid is troubled. You know, he beats up on kids at school because he himself is beat up at home by his, by his siblings and by whoever else is there. Um, so well, that's an interesting I think it's, aspect. It's actually a lot more than that because um, th there's really th they they use really specific uh, coding to sh to sort of signal that there's a cycle of violence. Right, the film opens with um, Owen going um, talking about you know what are you gonna do now, little girl, like waving the knife around and shit like that. Um, and then we see that he learned this from the bully who beats him up and calls him little girl. And then we see that he learned it from his older brother who beats him up and calls him little girl, right? So it's not just, it's not just between two characters, it's between three. And, and it, it, there's a clear like path of descent. And I think that's actually one of the, one of the major themes of the movie is, is the notion of this sort of these cyclic cycles of, violence and manipulation and dependency and and sort of a a symbiotic but but negatively symbiotic relationship right it's not a parasitic relationship because um um abby doesn't only take away from owen right she does give him some things he needs she, she gives him attention she gives him a a confidant um at one point she basically saves his life um and uh, and she counsels him to become more of the sort of person who who you know can stay safer from what's going on. Um, although again, it's implied that this is in its own way a perpetuation of a cycle of violence. Um, but but there's this there's definitely a, a an ancestral almost like original sin element to it where things get passed down. You know. Oh, Owen ends up in the role that is of Alfred or what have you. It's passed down. Um, and, you know, this is because of a cycle of violence that was perpetuated, you know, through a chain of several different people in an identical way until it reached, you know, a, a new conduit. Yeah, so if I could add to that, I think to that extent, the fact that it's cyclical 
um, in in very in many different ways throughout the film. Uh, there's different ways in which different things are cyclical, like the way you just described. I think that that speaks to something almost like what we were talking about in It Follows, something that's core to the, I think you, you put it perfectly, something that's core to the human experience. Not necessarily always there, like maybe in It Follows, everyone dies, right? But in, in uh, Let Me In and in Let the Right One In, um, the capacity to develop toxic relationships between other people, and it doesn't need to even be sexual relationships, but the capacity to develop those is, uh, is, is sort of embedded into the, the human experience and our social relations. Right. So the cycles of violence and all of that, I think, speaks to something that is sort of solidified in terms of the human experience, something that could anyone could adopt in any culture, like not just over here in the West, but like it's something that can happen anywhere between any relationship it could happen between parents and kids. It could happen between friends. It could happen between lovers. Right. And and there's also an element of this um, even in in uh, uh, in another axis that's exposed in the movie. And that's where. Um, Ellie attacks the uh, the older woman and puts her in the hospital, and then she ends up because she almost dies from the attack. She ends up becoming a vampire herself, and then burns away in the in the light. And you know, on the one hand, this is used to as a narrative purpose to introduce the fact that you know light is a problem, and that, and that this is going to have this is this explains some things that you've seen in the movie. Um, but in a more profound way, what that shows is that is it makes you ask, okay, so this is how they're made. So that means that this is what happened to Abby at some point, right? You know, that Abby at some point woke up and went, oh, and was, oh shit, you know, I was just killed by something and now I'm alive in a new, another, you know, way, you know what I mean? Like this is this is something that she went through as well. This incredibly traumatic experience that she went through, as she realized she was, you know, awake again with the beast within now, right? So, um, this again sort of points to the to the to the ancient roots that the film wants you to feel for everything that's happening in the movie. This everything everything that's happened in the movie has already happened a bunch of different times before. Right, and we're just viewing the newest iteration of this inevitable cycle, and and so I guess it's a kind of a Lovecraftian horror in that sense. Where in the film did you think Abby had Owen? In other words, like where, what scene in the film, or right around what particular part of the movie did you feel like she's got Owen locked in? When uh, when he clobbers, what's his face with the stick? That's the scene that did it for you. That's when, because you're, so right after that scene, what happens, right? He runs to Abby and he's kind of like, he's got beta breath and he's like, I did it. I did it. Is it. Was that sort of what you're referring to? Like with the fact that like, she's almost proud that he's going to tell her maybe I'd instead it was, it was, the, it was the, the choice to break from his previous cycles. That was, that was the indication that now there's a new dynamic, you know? Um, it was, it was where he finally, he finally snapped right inside and so that that was definitely the moment where he finally snapped where he was like not not like this not again i'm do gonna do it differently this time i'm gonna try something else i think the bloody kiss i think uh you know once that bloody kiss was planted i'm like okay he's hooked because <laughs> i would i don't know if i could make out with even no matter how much i like somebody i don't think i can make out with them with the their face just full of blood like that so um, I think he was hooked at that moment, but I don't know. Maybe there was something to that 
with that bloody kiss that made it somehow important in the story, some kind of metaphor to it that I don't understand. Well, it's very, you're, the scene you're referring to, right, is close to the end of the film. Um, I originally thought that's, that, that's what I would have said at first until I watched the film a couple of times. Uh, by the way, that scene that you just mentioned, right, is like sort of the perfect image of a codependent relationship. Just she wraps her bloody arms around him like this, and then she kisses him on the lips, and it's, it's this toxic, messed up, fucked up thing. It, but under it, there's, there's a kiss, right? There's something beautiful there, but it's just devalued heavily because of all of the, all of the corn syrup on top. Uh, what, about, what about you, Josh? Uh, I, I think I'm going to differ with everybody here. And maybe it's just because the American version was just so crappy. But I, I, I because I couldn't really tell. Um, he seemed infatuated with her the moment she touched his Rubik's Cube. Like, he, I, I, I think that any, any girl showing him any kind of attention whatsoever um, and wanting to be interested in the things that he was interested in, um, I, think, I think she had him at the, at the cube. But then there were other scenes where he's like stabbing the tree and he's like, go away. I don't want to talk to you. And I, you could tell that it was kind of disingenuous. Like he was looking after her when, you know, wondering where she went. He, he wanted her to still be watching him. So I think, I think he was hooked from the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say you're, so you're, you think he was hooked very early. I think Shayra thinks he was hooked uh, fairly late. I'm somewhere around Antonio. I'm trying to think of, where it is compared to him but basically you know the scene where she shows him what happens if uh if she's let in without being being let in without saying you can come in right and she starts bleeding profusely the look on owen's face when she does that is everything to me right he stops and he says no no you can come in and he gives her a big hug and and he said the dialogue goes something like this he says like what would have happened if i just wouldn't have said anything right and her response was i knew you wouldn't let that happen or like, I knew you wouldn't have let me do that or something. And that's when I knew, like, it, you got to think, like, this is a vampire who's been around hundreds of years, who's done this many times before. That's essentially, I think that's the moment where she knew I got this guy. I think the beautiful thing about this entire story is that they, they take that uh, older vampire taking advantage of these younger people that haven't been around for very long. I think they've really managed to to portray that properly because you watch movies like, twilight and uh you know even even some of the good Anne rice stuff and you, you feel like they sexify these vampires and that it's like oh yeah come hang out with me it's not weird and creepy that i'm actually a thousand years old um they they make sure that you know that it's creepy what she's doing is predatory what she's doing is creepy and wrong so i i'm gonna give it a 6.5 out of 10 what about you guys the American version, uh, I'd give a six out of ten. Um, there, there were definitely some interesting elements to it, and um, you know, like we talked about, the way that the bullies were portrayed in the American version, definitely interesting to me. Um, def- definitely a good spin to it. Um, otherwise, it would be much lower because my God, the CGI and fake snow was just comedy for me. But uh, no, there were some elements that really stood out for me, so I'll give it a six out of ten. Antonio, say 11. I want you to say 11 right now. 11 out of 10. I'm say 11, but I am going to say 7.5. Ah, um, wow. The reason is because um, it's, it, first of all, it's a philosophical work, and anything that's a philosophical work automatically bumps, you know, bumps it up at least a point in my book because so few movies are self-aware and try to ask hard questions like that. Um, even And even the ones that do are very heavy-handed with the message, and I feel like the message here was pretty subtle. Like you can get, you can derive a bunch of different themes out of the out of the movie, 
and it's because it has this again this primality to it right and i'm you know if from this and it follows i'm noticing a pattern in sort of movies that you're that you're pointing out there's a lot of coming of age themes a lot of primality and a lot of nihilism so uh, are you ready to hear the most horrifying thing about this film okay yes and this will be just i guess a running gag with the with all this stuff but the most horrifying thing about this film that I found out was that the actors that played in this film, the young boy, is the same age as my husband. Oh. <laughs> That's it. That's it. And when it's I fun. saw that, I was like, damn, this is, this is not working for me. That's it. Podcast is over. Good night, everybody. That's it. That's it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah. that's wild. That is a, that's a horror movie unto itself. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. So yeah, I was looking up some stuff on IMDb in the middle of the movie and I'm like, oh fuck this movie. <laughs> yeah, it was made a long time ago. Uh, it was yeah. made a long time ago. Jesus, that is... Yeah, we're old. Uh, you know what? We just gotta go back and watch It Follows again and just be reminded we're gonna die soon. You know? Uh, damn. That's the beauty of this movie too, though. This movie is also a very much a will. we're all eventually going to die kind of movie because... <laughs> It, it does have the, it, like I said, it does have that cyclic nature to it, and it points out that you know what what's going to happen to Owen. He's going to end up, you know, with his face acid burned to getting the blood drained <laughs> out of him and dumped off a building one of these days. You know what I mean? You yeah. you you come of age, then you get manipulated, and then you get sucked dry, and then you die. I I feel like my closing thing about this movie is that it's really a it's really uh, a, I would say it's, it's a morality play. It's not really a morality play. It's, it's, um, it's a movie that, make, yeah, it's, uh, it's a much better way to put it. It's, it's a tragedy that makes you, like, like all tragedies, um, consider the human condition to some degree, right? To consider your place in the universe, and I think in this case in how you exist with people around you. Um, and that, in it, just for me, that in itself is uncomfortable. Like, I just hate even thinking about those sorts of things how i look to other people how i come off to other people am i am i am i treating other people the right way are they treating me the right way i i get anxiety when i think of my place in the world in terms of how i function in society as a husband or as a provider or as a friend or as a brother um and so there's already sort of an anxiety for me when i think of those things and it's only manifest when i think about the fact that I could be doing things I'm not aware of that are hurting me or those around me, and I'm not only not aware of it, but they're not only they're not aware of it. Uh, that's that's a that's a scary thought. So I may not sleep for four days, and I may take vigorous notes about how I need to be more skeptical of my relationships. This may have scarred me. I'm just gonna throw. That well, that, that's that's almost the opposite of of kind of my closing thought, which is that, that there's almost a comforting element to the movie, and that is that that you know toxic though it may be um we we are in you know cycles that we have less control over than and less knowledge of than we suspect and also um even the weirdest and most picked on and most outcast of us can find ways to get our itches scratched as it were you know we can we can find places where we fit and and re relationships where um we're serving a need and getting a need met, even if it's toxic, you know what I mean? And, and there is kind of a comforting element to that because it means that, you know, yes, everything is chaos and we're all falling into an endless void, but there's nothing you can do about it. 
and and your your place was in the stars was sort of was was set long before you were at yourself in motion and so you can just kind of let yourself coast into the endless dark and there's, is, there's the comforting wow. part of horror i don't know how that's comforting but okay <laughs> That's like a Hitchcock fucking like that's that's you might you literally just like wrote, wrote Edgar Allan Poe's next greatest hit right there. I just think <laughs> it's comforting. Uh, yeah, wow, wow. Um, we look at things very different, Antonio. I like that. Yeah, that was dark, dude. <laughs> and it says a lot about you because you enjoy the dark. Apparently, you embrace the darkness. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> this film. Um, it makes me really question myself at times because I am a very compassionate person. I try to empathize with others. And sometimes that is a very bad thing because some people are manipulating me. Some people are lying to me. I can't tell you how many times I've tried to help somebody out and it's been a very toxic situation that's happened to me. It's happened so many times. And um, I've, in my old age, become a bitter old person i'm like whatever die then i don't care starve you know <laughs> like i'm not trying to be a jerk about it but once you've been through those manipulative situations so many times you can spot them and um in this film just portrayed it perfectly and i i so much relate to the characters because i can't tell you how many times people manipulated me in that way um but I, in a way it is positive because i look at it and go i don't do that anymore that's cool like i've grown out of that and you know, maybe that's my coming-of-age story, is learning how to not be manipulated in that way. And maybe we could even, you know, imagine that in the future he figures it out and, and gets away from that relationship. Um, maybe he can grow out of it. But I doubt it, <laughs> considering how hooked he was. <laughs> um, but no, I, it helped me reflect a little bit on some of my past and how I've grown as a person. Well, thank you guys so much for uh, taking the time to do this. For all those that are watching, um, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Deadly Analysis. Uh, you can check out our YouTube page at DeadlyAnalysis.com and shoot us a like on Facebook. Our next uh, roundtable discussion will be on the horror movie Creep, which is not my autobiography. It is not a story about me, um, but it could be. So anyway, thank you guys for watching, and uh, I will see you guys next time. Mm -hmm.